Hi there. Here we are again on the Dishcast. And again, because the contractors are the way they are. I'm still in Provincetown, actually kind of loving it. It's much quieter, much quieter and beautiful. And if you are a writer like me, it's sort of a lovely place to be secluded and to read books and to jab on your computer and laptop. If you also are a misanthrope like me, it can also be lovely. <laughs> Provincetown without all the bloody homosexuals everywhere. It's kind of beautiful. Anyway, I'm here. I'm queer. Everyone's used to it. I'm going <laughs> to going to remind you that of the guests we have coming up who are really awesome, actually. David Leonhardt is coming on to talk about his book about the American dream and how we lost it. And Kat Bohannon is coming on to talk about her new book, which is Eve, How he, the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Evolution, Human Evolution. John Judas, John B. Judas and writer Shara on their new book, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? And Matthew Crawford, wonderful man, interesting character, author of Shop Class of Soulcraft. That's coming up. We, we already recorded it. And it's a really kind of beautiful and rich conversation from a beautiful and intellectually very rich dude. But that brings us to this week. How do I, how do I describe Graham Wood? Well, there's one way of describing it, and he's just a foreign correspondent. He's been a staff writer at The Atlantic since 2006 and a lecturer in political science at Yale since 2014. He's also been a contributing editor to the New Republic and books editor of Pacific Standard. And he's the author of The Way of the Strangers, Encounters with the Islamic State. Graham is also, how do I put this? He's just one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. He's a dogged and fascinatingly detailed reporter. He has one of the biggest, most open minds I know and writes beautifully. I, I, if you haven't read his stuff, just type his name into Google and start because few people out there today are writing about the world with such immediacy and honesty and vibrancy. And I am, I loved being his colleague. I think he's also a wonderful human being and I, Grateful for him coming on the show after all that buttering up, Graham. Which isn't buttering up harsh, totally but... since I was a little harsh. I know. <laughs> it's it's really a, an honor to have you on the show. And I, I, I should have done so before now, but since you've been doing such stellar reporting from Israel and Gaza and the Golan Heights and the West Bank. Have you been to Gaza? Yes, you have been to Gaza. In, I've been on the on the border of Gaza, but on the, with, on the border. In, in oh, I haven't Gaza been inside it because no one very few people have. So I thought it'd be a fascinating moment to talk to you about a whole range of subjects that we will get to and focus on, obviously, the current hideous, hideous, horrifying toll that's going on in Gaza, which, however one understands and defends Israel's right to defense, if you are not at the same time just horrified and moved by what is happening to children and, and innocent civilians, partly because Hamas has put its artillery and its weaponry and its men and its, and its centers of organization in civilian areas. I don't know what to say. I am, I am I'm, I'm traumatized by it. And it's, it's just as one should have been traumatized by October 7th itself. But Graham, before we start, let's talk about how you got to be who you are. Where did you, where were you born and grew up and where did you go to school? So I was born in Minnesota, northern Minnesota, a small town called Crookston, Minnesota. And both my parents were immigrants from Canada, both doctors. And I lived for the first few years of my life there, but mostly grew up in Dallas, Texas. I was in Texas for about 10 years and had a pretty fantastic upper middle class upbringing there. I guess that the main thing that was distinctive about my childhood there was my, my parents, they, whenever they had free time, whenever they had a holiday, they were travelers. So from a very young age, they would take me absolutely everywhere. And, you know, you, you describe me as a foreign correspondent. If, if there's anything in my background that explains why my passport is so full of stamps, it's probably them. What do you think lies behind that travel bug? I personally have little understanding of it. I, 
I am the reverse. I actually really don't like travel. I, I find it incredibly disturbing and traumatizing and difficult and uncomfortable. And although I, I take the Isaac Mizrahi view that if I could, if I could snap my fingers and be in Paris in the afternoon, have a nice cup of coffee and uh, a croissant, and then actually snap my fingers and be back in my own bed that night, I'd be thrilled to go visit the world. But it's the incredible, I don't know, hassle of it all. But anyway, yeah, but what, the hassle. What drives that, people to do it? Go on. The hassle is why people do it. I mean, the people who really get hooked on travel, the way that I have, and the way I guess that my parents have. My parents, by the way, are, are in Albania right now, so they're still doing it in in retirement. But I think that the reason people get so into it is because of these miseries. You know, if you subject yourself to the miseries, you know, we we think of travel as something that that requires a lot of speed, moving around not having time to stop and think, it it actually can be exactly the opposite, where because of all the time that you spend between the places where you go, because of all the things that you see along the way by accident, and the indignities that you suffer, they're just not the indignities that you have when you're at home. And so, you know, I, 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 re I remember reading as a teenager, Ralph Waldo Emerson saying, travels a fool a fool's paradise and i do get that you know it, it, it is often the case where you you go with, you know eight thousand miles away and you see something that's similar to home there's some ways in which humanity is different but when you subject yourself to seeing things that are very far away you start to notice things because you're forced to slow down you're supposed to you're, you're forced to see things that you otherwise would not and to me it it it, it has meant that the experience of life that just blends together and causes time when I'm at home to speed up to, to warp speed where you, you know, wonder where the last month went, that just doesn't happen. There's so many different unfamiliar landmarks over the course of a, a month of hard travel that you feel like time has slowed down. And it's a truly wonderful thing. <laughs> it's in the traveling, you're saying, in the hassles that you can find insights and, and see things, that, that, that the idea that you're sort of transported immediately to a place, you would learn less than what you learn as you struggle to get there or in the journey towards it. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, that's, that's my experience. And I, I think that's borne out by some of the great travel writers, too. You know, like Paul Theroux, in his first great travel book, The Great Railway Bazaar, he goes to Tokyo by train. It was not the most efficient way to go to Tokyo, but he says he, 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 he sought out trains. He found passengers because you're just subjected to the company of other human beings over the course of many, many days and hours. And that it's the things that you didn't expect to find that you, that you end up finding. And seeing normal, ordinary people responding in different ways, interacting with each other, can tell you huge amounts about a society and, and the world it lives in. You, you can find stuff like that out in ways that you can't possibly do from 35,000 feet or from, or, from, or from watching videos or from reading books. Is that, is that also the, 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 the reason for doing it? Yeah, that's my experience. I mean, if you fly from London to Tokyo, I guarantee you nothing interesting will happen. It just will not happen. But if you are taking uh, trains and automobiles and hovercraft, whatever else, you're just going to see things that you didn't otherwise see. And it, in my line of work now, as a, as a journalist, this often pays off. You know, if you if you've been to Afghanistan hitchhiking around, uh, then when Afghanistan shows up in the news, as as it did a matter of months after I did that in, in 2001, then suddenly you have just psychologically something on which to hang your reporting and your understanding of a place. So, yeah, I, I, I think the greatest preparation for, for the type of writing that I do is, of course, just to go somewhere, anywhere. Yeah, of course, one wonders, what were you bloody well doing in Afghanistan in early 2001? What brought you there? Was it just, a, was it just whimsy? Was it just a go out, see the world? Because Afghanistan is probably one of the most forbidding terrains on the planet as far as i can understand yeah it was it was mostly foolishness so i i was not in afghanistan proper i was on in the afghan pakistan border regions in 2001 and i think it was about about may 2001 
And I had heard, I was traveling around in India on the backpacker ant trail, and I had heard that in Peshawar, there was going to be a conference, a moot, as they called it, of Deobandis. And Deoband is the, the place where the, the, the Taliban, among others, have their kind of spiritual historical headquarters. And so they were having a, a huge conference where Deobandis and Salafis were coming together in Peshawar. And the keynote of that event was given remotely by none other than Osama bin Laden. So I was interested in this even before I knew that Osama was, was going to be there spiritually. So I went to Peshawar, met a bunch of Afghans, and then was taken by some of them to some of those border areas and in a, the most friendly way. I mean, that if it was a important discovery for me at that point, at the age of 21 or so, that however sinister these people might have been, however much they hated me or my nationality, if you go up to them and talk to them, then you can have pretty interesting conversations. So I did that over the course of a couple of weeks in Peshawar in 01. And you mastered the languages there? No, at that point, I knew nothing of the languages. So but you were able on... to communicate in English in some kind of rudimentary way? Yes, that's right. So, so what happened when you got to that conference? Did you get to that conference? I, I got to the outside of the conference. So there were people from all over there, including a lot who had come from the Gulf, and many of them spoke English. So I spoke to them. I was invited to their, to their homes. These were Pakistanis who were abroad in, in the Gulf. And so, yeah, that, that was my experience for those, those couple of weeks was, was hearing about what they were, what they were talking about, you know, and the, the theme of the conference was Deobandis, of whom the Taliban were the most important example then because they were ruling Afghanistan. And Salafis, they don't see eye to eye on a number of things theologically in their view of Islamic law, for example. And of course, Osama bin Laden was, is a Salafi or was a Salafi. And so... They were going through, hashing out these differences, trying to figure out how well they could play together. And if you ask them, you know, what are you doing? Why are you thinking about these things? They will just tell you. I mean, that this is what they care about most in the world. And that, that's, that's a really important lesson for, for someone who's trying to report on people like that is if you ask people about what they care about most in the world, then they have all the time in the world to tell you about it. Right. And, and, it's it's hard sometimes for a secular Westerner to to understand that, the, the, especially societies which have not particularly secularized, how religion can be the most important fact in any person's life. Yeah, and also the, that parts of the religion that seem like they're small, Picayune differences. You know, we're, we're talking about the difference between Mullah Omar and Osama bin Laden, which to most people, who cares what the differences are? That they're 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 just very close. But it turns out no, these differences are really important to them, and to the point where they have to decide whether they can, you know, be allies, collaborate. That's what they're doing. Because because to be allied with someone who is theologically incorrect would be terribly toxic to your cause and morally corrupt you. Yeah, if your cause is branded according to its theology. If you're saying, I'm right because of my theology, and it turns out the person who is giving you shelter and whose side you're fighting on disagrees in a deep way about, about the theology, you kind of have to figure that out because eventually it's going gonna, it's gonna to matter. And lo and behold, when ISIS came around, it really mattered. That was part of why ISIS, for example, hated the Taliban and, and considered them non-Muslims. Why did they actually? Let's, 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 let's hash that out a little bit. Yeah, so ISIS believed that most people who call themselves Muslims are not Muslims, but the Taliban in particular did a few things that they, that they disliked. The Taliban were the head of a state, and ISIS had, of course, its own state, but its view of what a state had to be was a caliphate. It had to have this, this antique slash medieval form and not the form that the Taliban were willing to, to, to have, which is a state that, you know, might have a seat at the UN, would exchange ambassadors with national states, other national states like Pakistan or the United Arab Emirates. And to, to ISIS, if, if the Taliban once 
educated about these things, once warned that, hey, you, you know, you've got, you've got the ability to declare a caliphate. If they don't do that, then according to ISIS, they have ceased to be Muslims and they must be fought. So that's, that was their view. They also thought, you know, that, so the, the head of the Taliban, Mullah Omar, he styled himself Amir al-Mu'minin, the, the prince of the believers, which is the title that historically has belonged to a caliph. And the Taliban said, we are going to give allegiance to Mullah Omar and not to your caliph, your Johnny-come-lately caliph, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And ISIS, when it came out that Mullah Omar had actually been dead for a few years, they said, aha, aha. So you had a chance to swear fealty to an actual caliph. And instead, you told everybody, follow us and follow this weekend at Bernie's corpse you have in the corner. That just demonstrates that you are not real Muslims and that the obligations of the faith to have a caliphate are ones that you don't really care about. So, you know, into the bin of non-Muslims you go. It is, it makes the Islamist ranks, as it were, easily dividable, right? I mean, it, it, there is no, I mean, the average, I mean, most of it, let's, let's not, let's not overgeneralize, but most people just think Muslims, crazy Muslims coming to kill us, kill each other. Uh, and there's some kind of like universal plot against us. When in fact, of course, there are huge numbers of differences, huge numbers of different sects, lots of hatreds, mutual hatreds that are actually often deeper than hatred of the West. Yeah. You know, ISIS did have a way of, of getting over some of those divisions where they said, you know, most people are not the Taliban. Most people don't have control over a patch of territory like Mullah Omar did. So the vast number of ordinary Sunni Muslims, if you ask them what their faith requires, it is prayer, it is the belief in one God, and it is the, in the uncreated Holy, Holy Quran. And they'd say, you know, that is what it means to be a Muslim. That is about two-thirds of the way to being a supporter of ISIS. And it's only if you have at some point added these innovative things like the belief in a a you know post-Westphalian or UN style state that you start going off off the deep end of of disbelief. So that they thought that you could have lots of political entities that that lose their Muslim status, but most individual Muslims basically agree with them and have to be educated to to understand some of the political obligations of Islam. But you know they're they're pretty close. It's only the leaders and the 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 stubborn stubbornly attached people to Hamas or to, to the Taliban who actually have to be fought and killed. Or Shia Muslims, presumably, who are another category altogether, or am I, am I, you know, like the Iranians? Oh, yeah, quite right. They're, they're first in line into the, into the wood chipper, according to ISIS. I mean, for the, the, the Shia Muslims, they call them the refusers because they, at a very early stage in, in the history of Islam, said, we do not follow the, the, the caliphs who the, the, the Sunnis identify as, as rightly guided. So, yeah, the, the ISIS believed that the, the Shia are simply the worst of all. They, they were, in fact, fought first. Well, that gives us a, a chance to look at and talk about Hamas, which obviously has been the key actor in the last month, two months in the Middle East. If you were to describe Hamas and ISIS uh, how would you explain their differences? How would you characterize each of them to help us understand why they are, they are not alike? Yeah, well, so I, I think it's helpful to start by describing the fairly obvious way, so I'll be quick about this, that they're similar. Obviously willing to undertake extraordinary brutality and violence. Uh, do it publicly, do it proudly. And so you know, I, I'm in Israel right now, and I, I've heard Israeli officials repeatedly say Hamas is ISIS. And occasionally, when you can get them to kind of slow down and just describe what they really mean by that, they're talking about that. They're talking about the fact that both of them are extremely violent, and they do their violence on on camera. Now, getting into differences. So well, let me just let me just yeah. go back, stay on that for a second, which is that. What Hamas did to civilians when they came over, the kind of absolutely grotesque 
brutality, torture, and murder that they engaged in. That did it was that that kind of reminded us of ISIS in a way, the savagery of it. Now you you actually have sat in that room and looked at some of the things that the rest of us have not seen. How foul is this? Is this is this ISIS level savagery or or was it just opportunism? Was it was it just was it spontaneous? How how do we make sense of the beheading or the 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 murdering of infants, babies that grabbing babies out of women's wombs, the decapitations that that well you tell me what you saw. Yeah, so I didn't see babies ripped out of women's wombs. What I did see was quite bad enough. I mean, there are certain things when you see them, you just have to sit in silence with yourself for a little while. And this is in that category where you you can be told that there is a, a child's bed that is smeared with blood. There's only one way it got that way. It's because a child was shot dead in his bed. And, but to actually see it is a very unsettling experience. And it's unsettling even to someone like me who spent years when ISIS was in business, watching everything that, that they, that they came out with every video that they had and th their videos were ghastly too. They were a bit different. I, I should add, you know, during ISIS's heyday, ISIS would sometimes have videos from the battlefield where they showed raids on an enemy position and they acted without mercy. Those videos tended not to be sadistic. I'm going to pay a strange compliment to ISIS here. What they wanted to do is kill some people. They wanted to kill people they considered who were Shia, who they considered enemies for one reason or another. With, with Hamas, you, those videos, you start seeing something different. There uh, was clearly some kind of revelry in the bloodshed where the practical purpose of the, of the violence had very much run out. Like if, if what your intention was, if your intention was to take some territory and to scare people, I think they had pr pretty much done that and they could have, they, they, they could have, they didn't have to do what they did, but you absolutely saw them really being, being horribly creative in the ways that they could disrupt the, what, the, the lives of, of, of the people they were, they were killing. What I think the thing that most disturbed me was, was one of the videos that one of the uh, Hamas people had taken using, I think, the phone of one of the victims and how he communicated to his parents that, look, mom, dad, I've killed 10 Jews with my own hands. I am a hero. There was this feeling of absolute ecstasy at condemning at, at tearing human beings apart. There was a sense in which this, they didn't regard these Jewish people as human beings at all. Yeah, the, there was a, he must have been a kid. His name was Mahmoud, I believe, on that call. And it, it was actually, to me, as troubling as any of the scenes, the, the visual scenes of carnage. So you, you hear him talking and yes, he, he says, I've got some Jewish woman's phone and he, he calls his parents and he says, I left my phone back in Gaza, but I sent to my WhatsApp images of what I've done. I am a hero. Your son is a hero. I've killed 10 Jews with my own hands. And he's so amped up and so excited about this that he can't really even communicate with his parents. And he can't tell what, what I could tell from listening to their reaction which was that they were freaked out. You know, I, I have no idea what their political views were. I have no idea what they thought about this raid in general. But at that particular moment, all they're saying is, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> okay, uh, you need to get home, please come home, please come home. And you know, they, they say various things that, you know, you, it, it's, when you hear it, it you kind of want them to say, that's horrible, why, why did you do that? You want them to say, um, turn yourself in or throw down your weapons, you know, don't die. And you don't hear any of that because they are shocked because they're hearing from their son, 
Uh, and I think wondering, first of all, are they going to see him again? Is, is, is he ever going to come back from, from Israel? And then I, I think maybe it's just the optimistic human in me that they are also kind of noticing that the straightforward interpretation of what he has said is that he is now a uh, mass murderer, that he has done something that is irrevocable uh, to his own soul, let alone to the 10 people he has he's destroyed. And to learn that your son has transformed himself this way must be, first of all, impossible to, 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 to really understand in the moment. But insofar as it can start dawning on you, a horrible and disturbing thing to discover. Hmm. Uh, theologically, where do Hamas and ISIS differ? Yeah, so Hamas is a chapter of the Muslim Brotherhood, which as an organization, ISIS declared non-Muslim. They, they excommunicated them. So the Muslim Brotherhood, it has its theologians, and it has a fairly big tent theologically. ISIS is not. ISIS is exactly the opposite, where they say, you know, very specifically, these are the things that, that you have to believe. What characterizes the Muslim Brotherhood's theology is this openness to, to politics. So the Muslim Brotherhood, it ruled Egypt for a while. It has, it has its hooks into other countries as well. And it understands that to create this someday global caliphate, you need to take steps. And so if you're going to rule Egypt, you can't just immediately turn on some caliphate switch and have every Egyptian ruled by, the, by, by Sharia. And so you find, find things like in Egypt under the Muslim Brotherhood, you can still buy alcohol, you can still gamble in casinos. And ISIS... Their view was, you have to get the theology right now. You cannot wait on these things. And if you do, if you have the ability to get the theology and law correct, and you don't do it, even though you have the power to do so, then you're a non-Muslim. So when ISIS sees Hamas ruling Gaza for more than a decade, and then they notice that, you know, although they have a... a somewhat conservative government, but they're doing all sorts of things that just kind of look like normal state-like behavior, aspirational state-like behavior. That they are, they're friendly toward other governments like Qatar, like Turkey. They talk about having a Palestinian state. And when ISIS saw that, their view was, no, 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 no. You, you start by getting the religion right. And if instead of doing that, you are fetishizing the idea of a state right now, that's, that's basically idolatry. And so uh, th they thought that the creation of a, of a state anywhere is the first priority. And if you fetishize the state right now, it, it's, it's sort of like putting, they, they believe that the conquest of Jerusalem would happen fairly late in the, the game, eschatologically speaking. So they thought the apocalypse would come and it would happen long after ISIS itself was victorious, then Jesus would come back, the Muslim Jesus would come back to Jerusalem and so forth. And they saw Hamas focusing on that right now, long before the caliphate had been reestablished. So they, they said, you just got everything backwards. Huh. Fascinating. And Hamas, of course, did govern. It was a, a government for since 2007, uh, or 2006, something like that. And, and so that's a long period in government. How would you rate Hamas's record in just actually governing the Gaza Strip? Well, so I haven't been in Gaza since before Hamas took, took power, so I, 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 won't, I won't rate it with my own eyes, but I can tell you the, the view of the people of Gaza, which is that Hamas, just like every other Palestinian government recently, is fantastically corrupt totally incapable of provision of the services that they'd expect from a, from a modern state. And yeah, totally un unsatisfactory that way. And, you know, by the way, I, I, I can give one more comparison with, with ISIS here. ISIS had a government too. ISIS's government, though, was holding up a three-by-five card that has all of the major criminal code on it and saying, this is what we're going to do. It's very simple. Everybody knows it. 
Hamas by taking on the responsibility of a modern state that that you know has all sorts of rules about uh, how you buy a house, for example, you know, where you put garbage, that, that kind of thing. It made itself hostage to the actual ability to to govern a state, which it it, it couldn't. What the reason I ask that is is because one I've been just thinking through ways in which Israel might have responded to what happened. And obviously, the emotions and the fact of the trauma of it kind of blew a lot of responses out. But if they had just stopped right there, and and instead of instantly going on the attack, it said, look, this is what Hamas is. Uh, I, I don't blame the Israelis for not doing that. I can see exactly why they did what they did, and I, but I'm just curious about whether there's any way in which you could possibly leverage regular Arab opinion against think, something like Hamas. And because I also, I don't believe, as I'm sort of told to believe by some people, that all these Gazans celebrate these atrocities. I can't, I, I, I've got to believe that many of them are like the parents of that son, that, 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 that they're not monsters, they're not inhuman people who believe in doing this to other human beings who are innocent. They know they're run by a corrupt, crazy bunch of fanatics. They know they've, they, they, they've lost an opportunity for economic growth, but all sorts of things. If, if, Ga if Gaza, I mean, you have almost all the Western governments desperately eager to have a successful Palestinian state, there would have been a lot of investment. There would have been a lot if they had not just decided to do what they, what they did. Is there any prospect of leveraging Arab opinion to say, look, we're prepared to live with Israel under certain conditions? I think I could tell you how the Israelis think about this, and I don't think it's a, much of a surprise. The Israelis, first of all, have thought that one of the theories since they left Gaza in the mid-2000s was, okay, we'll hand it over, and then it's somebody else's problem. And... Gazans will not be pleased with the misgovernment that they'll suffer. They were right. What they didn't what they didn't bargain on was that Hamas, just like the Palestinian Authority, Fatah in the West Bank, are not responsive to the fact that their their people don't like what they're doing. They're they're not. It's not like they're holding elections and trying to get those votes. And so they they were able to ride out that dissatisfaction for a long time. The other aspect of the Israeli response is simply to say, now that we've seen what could be done and what Hamas is willing to do, we just don't care about the opinion of Gazans anymore. We don't care about what plans are being made. We're going to attack the capability. So whatever they're willing to do, it might be a lot, it might be a little, but what they're able to do is what matters. And to do that, I do think it's necessary to actually go into Gaza and deprive them of tunnels, of weapons, and so forth. It doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. It doesn't mean it's the right choice strategically or over the long run. But if your view is, as the consensus of the is Israeli elites seems to be, that what you got to do is just make it so they can't do this, then that's probably what you got to do. And their changed view is because they reassessed the capacity of these people to to enact anti-Semitic terrorism at a at a level that is equivalent essentially to the Nazis, and that changed the the the, the equation. Right. I, I think you know the 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 communities that were on the edge of Gaza. These are kibbutzes filled with like lefty peacenik types. Uh, they were all and on MDMA. <laughs> but, but, I mean, right. I just, I cannot imagine. I've, I've been, been to, to some I of just, those. It, and they, yeah, they, you just, these are not right-wing Israelis. Th these people are utopians, and they had views about what they could do with, with Gaza. And, you know, they would often have relationships with Gazans from the other side of the border. Gazans would come across in tens of thousands to work uh, in agriculture in within Israel. And there was a lot of credit that was extended morally that I think Israel thinks, well, I'm not going to do that again. And, you know, when you talk to the survivors and to the family members from those communities, uh, part of why they're so shaken, in addition to the fact that they're 
family members were burned and dismembered, tortured, killed, and so forth, kidnapped, uh, is because of the delta between what they thought was possible uh, on the, when it comes to the good side of human nature and then what they observed. They weren't pessimists whose pessimism was confirmed. They were utopian optimists who have now discovered depths of pessimism that they didn't know existed and certainly didn't think was, was possible in their own hearts. Every right-wing critic of hippies would take some satisfaction from that sudden education in the, in the moral atrocities that human beings are capable of, I, I imagine. Of course, that isn't to say that one doesn't kind of feel a great deal of sympathy for them. Almost uh, poignant. I, 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 the images of those hang gliders coming down into that that open-air rave will never leave my head. It, it's like the 14th century reached the 21st in a strange kind of way. And yeah, let's, let's talk about what's actually now happening as a consequence of that horrifying assault by Hamas. And of course, it is gruesome to look at. And we're now talking about maybe eight to 10,000 civilians dead in Gaza, that the world's opinion, it seems to me, is not necessarily on Israel's side in this, and that the images that are being put out by are, are would 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 turn the stomach and affront the moral conscience of any human being, I think, who just cares about the lives of the other human beings. But it does seem to me that Israel has no intention of stopping. I, I, they, what, how, how does one commit to ridding Gaza? of Hamas without engaging in this kind of stuff. And and do we learn you you were there, you looked at Fallujah, the battle of Fallujah, which is not totally dissimilar. Maybe Mosul is a more important example of trying to go into a, a, an urban terrorist center. How do you think the Israelis have handled it so far? Well, when I first arrived in Israel after the attack, so we're talking about October 11th or so, I got on a plane as soon as the attack began and was, upon arrival, greeted with every Israeli I spoke to saying, there's an invasion that's going to happen, we support it, and it will happen within a week of the attack itself. There was every intention of going in as fast as possible, as hard as possible. And it, it was kind of surprising how long it took for Israeli de Israel's for the Israel Defense Forces to, to actually go into Gaza. They were softening up Gaza pretty severely. And also the West Bank, by the way, lots of arrests, lost, lots of action before the, the invasion itself. Now, as of, as of, and now, of course, the, the invasion itself has begun. And just as Israel didn't any longer care about the opinions of, of Gazans, they just wanted to eliminate the capability. I would say Israel continues not really to care that much about the opinions of the world and the fact that the mass production of these images of, of death, death of children, uh, is something everybody sees who is interested in, in knowing the truth about this conflict. And they are understandably shocked by, by those images and wonder what calculus could produce the, the 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 view that this is worth doing? Now, Israel says, "Look, we're going to be attacking uh, until we're going to be exercising our right to self-defense." And self-defense, given what happened on October seventh, means eliminating the ability of Hamas to do anything like that ever again. And that legitimate goal, we're allowed to pursue with. The, with proportionality, and you know, it's 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 very difficult for me to for me uh, to understand how the number of dead that that is being reported from Gaza could be consistent with that proportionality. I think the aim is is a just one. It's it's about as straightforward as as you can get. That if someone is going to to mass murder and torture your your civilian population, then you have a right to do something about it. I have a hard time believing, though, that the thousands of civilians who have died in the invasion and attacks on Gaza 
that if, say, Hamas was somehow underneath a Israeli hospital, that Israel would be as willing to kill Israeli civilians as they seem to have been in their pursuit of the terrorists of Hamas. Now, it, although one although one one wonders, they can't know where the hostages are. They 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 do seem to be also kind of indifferent to the fate of the hostages in their assault. They could well be yeah. killing them. So we're talking now about about two hundred and forty hostages, uh, and. You know, I, I've come back to Israel many times over the years, and I remember very vividly Gilad Shalit, who was this Israeli enlisted man who was one hostage for years, who was in some dungeon, some tunnel in, in Gaza, and making sure that he got out alive, and in, in the end, exchanged for roughly a thousand Palestinian prisoners, was a huge priority. So it's simply impossible that they could have the same care for the lives of the 239 hostages that Hamas has that they had for this one guy before. But, you know, I, but I I've been surprised that. that they haven't focused on the hostages more, Israel. It seems to me that's an issue of which they have an absolutely clear moral uh, standing. And yet they have not really said, give us back the hostages or else they've just gone in right away. There's, there's no real leverage to get the hostages back, it seems to me. I, I think you're mistaken. I, I think that the conversations that have been taking place in Qatar have, have been a hard bargain, to be sure. I mean, that they've been saying Hamas has claimed that the bargain that they've offered is release all Palestinian prisoners and we will release the hostages. Israel's, Israel's stance is, is quite different. It, it, it is, how about you release the hostages and we'll you know, give you a few days to prepare for your own deaths. That, that's, that's the hard bargain that they think is the only bargain that they could, could accept with Hamas at, at this point. So a lot of, a lot of the time I've, I've been here, I've been talking to families of the hostages, and, and you can imagine that under these circumstances, they're freaking out. I mean, they're, they're, they're children, their babies are being used as human shields in tunnels by Hamas. And the IDF has no way, no way of invading without putting those Israeli babies into, into, into harm's way. I mean, this is, you've, you, you mentioned the comparison to Mosul or to Fallujah. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that is the proper comparison, except that Fallujah did not have decades, almost decades, to prepare itself for an, for an invasion. The digging of tunnels, the, the creation of an infrastructure for, for guerrilla warfare, that is, that's, that's, there's a lot of Hamas R&D that's gone into that. And Israel is, is discovering that right now. And also with Fallujah, they could seriously ask all the civilians to get out of there and provide a means for them to do so. Same also, I think, in Mosul, that there really was, now, Here's the thing. I, I understand what Netanyahu said, what the Israelis have said, which is that they have told the Gazans to go south, to get out of this part of where they're going to conduct their operations. And they say that means that we don't, we've given them the opportunity to leave and any, anybody we kill has therefore made a choice to stay there. And tough titties. What, how would you, how do, what do you make of that Israeli assertion? Because the one thing that worries me is that I keep reading these stories, and I don't know whether they're true or not, that Israeli has also been shelling the south, that, 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 that civilians can move south, told they're going to be safe, and then they're actually not safe in the south, and they can't get out of Gaza either. So what do, uh, tell me your response to that. Um, like, is, is that true? Well, first of all, I have little doubt that the Israelis do want civilians of Gaza to leave Gaza City. They want them to go south. And if they could incentivize their going south by telling them that it's safer there, which it is, and which it will be as the invasion continues, they'll, they'll do anything they can to get them out of the way so that, so that if it's a free fire zone, they, they hit only legitimate targets. But surely bombing the south as well is not helping it, that message get across. No, no. I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that the south is a place where I'd like to be right now. But I, if I had the choice between being in the center of Gaza City 
or being in Khan Yunus or Rafa, then I'm going to take the, the, the latter every time. Now, wh what I think, though, has to be said is Israel may want that, but it's really difficult for them to credibly say to the civilian pop population of Gaza, go south, it's better for you to do that. And guess what? You, you can come home after we're done killing Hamas. We have your best interests in mind. If the Israeli government has been, as it has for the last year or so, been saying at the top of its lungs, we deserve to have the entire West Bank and Gaza Strip under our control permanently, forever. And if there were no Palestinians there, we would be very, very happy with that, that outcome. So they may beg them to go south, but if you're a Palestinian, if you're a, someone who's been living your whole life in Gaza City, you'd have a really good reason to distrust them when they say that you can come back after we've killed your Hamas people. What you just stated in terms of senior members of the Israeli administration, which is a different kind of administration than we've seen in the past, although it's not complete, it's, it's, it's a kind of a culmination of a certain trend in, in Israeli politics. But you do have people, serious leading ministers in that administration, that government, who really do want ethnic cleansing in the West Bank, who, who really want to have the West Bank solely for Jews and also to reconquer Gaza. And obviously when the IDF tells large numbers of, of, of Palestinians to move, it has a certain historical resonance going back both to 1948, 1967, et cetera, et cetera. I am staggered by the inability of the, the, the defenders of Israel in all this ever to mention, and almost never to mention the fact that it's much harder for Israel to claim the moral high ground when it is simultaneously attempting to cleanse Arabs out of, and Palestinians out of the West Bank, intimidating, harassing, They've built God knows how many settlements over the last 20 years, somewhere like 700,000 Palestinians now live, oh, Israeli settlers live in either East Jerusalem or the West Bank, something like that. They, the, the prime minister himself has said he doesn't want really a two-state solution, pretty explicitly. So how does Israel, how would one defend them from the claim that you are attempting to, to get rid of the Arab population? You you have committed against a two-state solution. That makes you very hard to defend in terms of the justice of the region. I mean, th there's an absolute defense and then there's a relative defense. And Hamas has made the relative defense very easy. I mean, Israel has done some terrible things. I'm sure not every one of those munitions that they've dropped on Gaza ha has been something that I'd be comfortable with now. There were some have big, not, bloody however, bombs, 2,000 pounds. I, just, I, mean, I don't know how to imagine what a 2,000 bomb, pound bomb is, but it sounds pretty horrifying. The yeah, they're destroying buildings. And if you don't know absolutely everyone in those, in, who everyone in those buildings is, that, then you know, you're, you're culpable for, for what happens when it, when it lands. They haven't, however, done some of the things that, that Hamas did gleefully on camera on October 7th. So... As a relative matter, it's, it's very easy for, for Israel to look pretty good compared to, to Hamas. But you're quite right. It, the, the leadership of the current government of Israel is, in degree at least, totally different from anything that we've seen before in their, their desire to cleanse the West Bank of, Gaza, of, excuse me, of Palestinians. They've said so openly. I mean, in, in the past, Israeli politicians, they've certainly uh, have, have uttered the desire for Israel to, to have dominion over the entire land of Judea and Samaria. For it to be put into policy as it has by the, the, the current ministers is, is really something, though. I mean, that there is a finance minister who's he's described this, he's written it out in English and in Hebrew, his name is Bezalel Smotrich, and he describes very clearly, this is how it's going to go. We are going to aggressively create more settlements. We are going to find Palestinians and then bribe them to leave. And then anyone who doesn't leave will be uh, militarily subjugated and destroyed. 
they can stay if they want to be a kind of politically neutered Palestinian class within within Israel. But he said, our ambition is as peacefully as possible, and then less peacefully if necessary, to turn this place into simply the land of Israel with a certain number of Arab citizens who, who maybe eventually will have some ability to vote and to have power over their own local politics, but it won't be their land. So if you get your, your most prominent ministers saying these things, then the, the fact that he backs it up with the threat of violence, to me, makes it sound like ethnic cleansing. And yeah, when you're asking Palestinians to get out of the way, even just to move a few tens of kilometers away so you can go in and, and conduct a military operation, nobody's going to believe you. And I think that's why a lot of them have st stuck around. What we've seen also, are these, these, these settlers are among the most fanatical and bonkers of religious fundamentalists. And I've been reading some stories in the Post and you, I mean, that shows that they're just harassing little hamlets, little villages of Arabs. The Bedouin are being harassed. They're making their lives unbearable until they're forced to leave. Now, again, this is, I don't, you say it sounds like ethnic cleansing. No, it is ethnic cleansing. I don't know what else to call it. Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the Dishcast. You'll be able to add it to your Dishcast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>